Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Winsome Creationist. In this one, we're going to chat through why distant starlight is a problem. If God supposedly stretched out the heavens, as it mentions multiple times in the Bible. Now, when I first got into the creationism discussion, this is one that I heard very quickly. And it made lots of sense to me. Like, I'm pretty sure Kent Hovind mentions this in his creation seminar series. And like many of you, I was first introduced to the concept of creationism through uh, Kent Hovind. And, you know, I'm not going to go all into that. Lots of controversy around him. And I certainly disagree with him on many, many things today. But reality is, he got me into creationism, and I'm grateful to him for that. And so he used to say this, and there are others who say this. It's definitely part, uh, been part of the um, cosmological thinking, if you will, of creationists over the uh, last few decades. And we had a question come in on the YouTube channel. Thanks, Patrick, for your comment. And I like to engage with the comments and use it as content for for you guys, I think that answering a lot of these questions that people have is really a helpful exercise. And so actually engaging with the comments and going right there and um, using that to help fuel the content for the channel, I think is a great way to go about it. Also working on some additional interviews to be coming soon down the pipeline. Um, lots of people right now are busy working on International Conference for Creationism, which as I'm recording this happens in a week or two. I will be there and I'm excited about that. Um, and uh, so lots of people doing prep work for that. And so I didn't want to bother anybody during this month. Um, and, uh, you know, but anyway, starting with next month, for sure, going to try to get some more interviews going on and maybe have one later this month. We'll see. Okay. So uh, I want to read Patrick's comment for you and then kind of give a few thoughts. So Patrick says this, I keep hearing about this light time problem. Basically, if what we see is so far away, how did the light get here in six to 7,000 years? But in 13 different passages, scripture makes the claim that God stretched out the heavens. Apparently, there's evidence that space can expand faster than light can travel. So where's the problem? The light from those stars was already falling on the earth or close to being so, and God moved that star along with space further away, stretching out the light. I just can't see how this is difficult. So I want to center in. He asked, actually, it's kind of a layered question there, um, but he uh, it all kind of like culminates in the idea of God stretching out the heavens. And so it's very important that we look at the biblical angle of this and and see like, well, what does that actually mean? So I want to talk about this concept and I want to read a few of the verses to you that talk about this and then we'll go from there. So I'm just going to read three of the available verses and there's, again, a plethora of them. Isaiah 40, 22 says, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Isaiah 42, 5 says, Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk with it uh, therein. And then Isaiah forty four twenty four, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, 
and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, and stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. So, in these verses, we have, again, very poetic descriptions of God's interaction with the world. And I, I do think it's very important that we take time to think about what they could mean. And so I want to zoom out and think about a few different ideas and, and, and submit this to you for your thinking. And you don't have to agree with me here. Um, I, I, by the time we get to our first point, some of you are already going to disagree with me, and that's fine. Um, but I, I do want to just give you some things to think about. And I, I personally, just spoiler alert, I don't personally believe that we can use these passages to say that the Bible was aware of the expansion of space. I don't think that's what's meant by stretching out the heavens here. And so let's talk about a few reasons why I, I don't think that that's the case. So um, the biggest part of this debate, in my mind, is the understanding of concordism versus non-concordism. And concordism is the view that science and the Bible will line up in a very uh, sort of nice and tidy fashion. So, for example, Hugh Ross, an old earth creationist, is a very well-known um, concordist. And he literally wants to say that when we see in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, you can map that to an event called the Big Bang. Okay? When he says in, I think it's Jeremiah 33, 25, that talks about the Lord having established a covenant with heaven and earth. He, he wants that to map one-to-one -to, -one to the laws of physics, okay? So he's looking for science and the Bible to map together. Now, a lot of young earth creationists do this too. I think it would be fair to say that Henry Morris, one of the just classic creationist thinkers, um, would have been a concordist. If you read his study Bible and his notes and his thoughts on different things, which a lot of the modern creationist movement got their ideas from him, so it's no surprise that many are concordists. Um, he, he talks about a lot of elements in the Bible that directly map to certain scientific phenomena. Take that in contrast with somebody who is a non-concordist, okay? A non-concordist is going to be someone who um, is looking at the Bible as a historical document. It is um, speaking with authority to historical matters. It explains what happened. To an extent, it can explain how things happened. But we can't take things literally in the sense that the Bible is describing the scientific mechanism by which something took place. Okay, so um, what's an example of this? So maybe you've got an example where, well, let's just say where we are. Okay, so stretching out the heavens, okay? Stretching out the heavens. It seems to us, because we are aware of modern cosmology, that when we look at the words stretching out the heavens, we can imagine, we think of the heavens and, and we think of space, the final frontier, right? We think of stars and balls of gas and galaxies and, and planets. And, and, we, and we, all, we almost imagine, we almost imagine almost like a, um, 
um, like an accordion or something. We think about God sort of taking his hands, literally stretching out the heavens. And um, there, there was even a, a creationist, um, you know, um, uh, there's a creationist like theory of cosmology that basically has like uh, imagining stretching out the light from the stars, right? As, as the heavens spread apart. And I actually think that's what Patrick is, is kind of getting at in his comment here. Uh, the problem is, and we're going to talk about this a lot more in a minute, but the problem is that these people who were writing these passages, Isaiah writing this passage, had no idea that stars in the sky were balls of gas. He had no idea that space was this huge, expansive thing. They, they didn't have the technology to know what it was like we know today. Now, the question is, can the Bible be talking about something that only makes sense to a modern reader? I think the answer to this is no. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense that it could mean that a meaning could be there that makes sense only to us that has no immediate context for them, okay? So, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I want to talk about these things in strides. But if we, if we detach concordism from the text, okay, then we don't have to take it to mean that, okay? That I, I just want to start there, okay? We're free in a non-concordist view to say, okay, when God is stretching out the heavens, we're free to say that's not actually talking about the expansion of space because they wouldn't have known about the expansion of space. And it's really odd for Isaiah to write about the expansion of space if he doesn't know about it. Now you say, well, but, but God and, and inspiration and uh, God inspired the scriptures. Yes, and this podcast is not, this episode especially, is, is not about discussing the inspiration of the Bible, although that's something that we can do in the future. But it is very important to realize that the Bible was written by humans under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there was a process behind it. It's not like it was some sort of trance download where God downloads into the mind of the writer what he wants him to write, and then the writer wakes up from the trance and says, oh, look what I wrote. I wonder what that means, okay? That's, no, that's not the picture that we have of how biblical inspiration works. We understand that God was superintendent over the process of using these biblical writers. It was, very, it was both a human and a divine process, but we must not sacrifice the human elements of it, okay? so. It was both human and divine. And so it doesn't make sense for Isaiah to be writing about something about which he has no idea of in that context, okay? And so uh, uh, this at least gives us the, the opportunity, the possibility to say, you know what? When God says he's stretching out the heavens, maybe it's not talking about the expansion of space. What could it mean? And so we're, we're going to get to that here, okay? Um, and a point that's very um, prescient on, on, on this matter of concordism versus non-concordism is the risk of outdated science, okay? This, taking a, a literalistic, concordistic approach to the text really puts you at risk for tying science too closely to the Bible because scientific consensus changes. Our scientific knowledge and understanding changes. And this is actually a very important point of creationist history. You know, we argue that um, when they were having conversations about geocentrism in the Bible, and the church was apparently very adamant about this, it, it wasn't necessarily that the Bible taught this idea of geocentrism. It was that people had so closely tied 
their understanding of what the Bible taught to the modern science of the day. Okay, well, modern science becomes old 20 years down the road or even five years down the road, even one year down the road. Okay, what's modern is always changing. So we must be very careful to disassociate scientific models and mechanisms from the text of Scripture. And so if you create a, a, a tightly knit bond between those two, then you really run into trouble on this, okay? So that's the first point I wanted to mention is concordism versus non-concordism. I don't think it makes sense to press the Bible to be teaching certain scientific models or else that's going to, again, cause a lot of big problems um, that I don't think we want to um, have to deal with, okay? The second point here, which I mentioned briefly earlier, is that we can't press poetic passages too far. And again, I, I want to make clear that each of these points that I'm mentioning there's actually very um, important creationist rebuttals to other issues that depend on the points that I'm making, okay? For example, when I say we can't press poetic passages too far, you know, a lot of creationists have been, um, um, you know, chastised or, or talked down to for, uh, for taking the Bible as a, as a like, wood, wood, in a wooden literal way. You've heard people certainly make this claim about creationists. Oh, you guys take everything in this wooden, hyper-literal fashion, and that's not how the text is intended to be taken. And we rebut that by accurately pointing out that, no, we don't do that. We take passages that are historical narrative, and we interpret them in the grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, like we ought to. We take passages that are poetic, and we interpret them, understanding that there are going to be some differences and that you know there's not going to be a one-to-one -one map between literal reality and what the um, poetry states. And so it's very important that we make a distinction between the different genres of literature. That's relatively uncontroversial. It's a point creationists have been making, rightly so, for a very long time. Similarly, when it comes to this, we can't push these poetic passages too far to say that, yeah, this stretching out of the heavens, which is in a very poetic passage describing the wondrous acts and the marvelous works of God's creation, we can't take that to press so literally into this scientific model, the scientific understanding of the expansion of space, okay? That would be to violate our own principles in understanding how far we can take and press a poetic passage. At the very least, because these passages are written in, in these contexts, these poetic and prophetic um, contexts, we should be willing to at least step back and say, okay, I, I at least can see where it might not mean that the stretching out of the heavens means the expansion of space, okay? We can at least create some separation between that one-to-one -one literal mapping, okay, as we're looking at this. So we can't press poetic passages too far. And again, many, many creationist arguments depends on not pressing poetic passages too far. Otherwise, we believe that Jesus was literally a door, right? And we don't actually believe that. So we want to be careful about that. Now, another point that I briefly mentioned, and this is the next one that I want to go into a little bit deeper, is that it can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them, okay? It can't mean for us what it could not mean for them because it just wouldn't make any sense. So for a long time, you know, there were people who, who basically made arguments that like the locusts in the book of Revelation were like Black Hawk helicopters and military tanks and things like that in the, in the future, okay? The thing is, it couldn't have meant that for who, the Apostle John who wrote that book. It couldn't have meant Black Hawk helicopters, okay? Um, because he didn't know what a Black Hawk helicopter was. So um, what 
uh, could it have meant? Well, I mean, it could mean physical armies. Of course, it, it could mean that, but it can't mean Black Hawk helicopters, okay? And so it can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them. So if it couldn't mean the expansion of space for them because they didn't know about it, then it can't mean the expansion of space for us. But there is something that it could mean for them that it could also mean for us. And that's the last point that I want to make. And that is that this, this language, the idea of the stretching out of the heavens is actually fantastic evidence for another very important, uh, very important point of the creationist way of arguing about scripture or interpreting scripture. And that is phenomenology. Okay. Phenomenology, a big word that basically just means reporting about things in the way that we see them. Again, an important point, Joshua 10, for example, the passage where it talks about the sun standing still for many, many years now, creationists have argued that from a phenomenological perspective, in other words, from the perspective of the viewer, of the person who was actually writing about this event, they saw the sun standing still. They were simply describing things as they saw it. So people who took that hyperliteral approach were wanting to say, well, because of the way that the science describes this event happening, the Bible teaches geocentrism. Okay. And what we want to do is realize that that's not the case because the writer wouldn't have any had any idea about geocentrism and heliocentrism. The, the writer was simply describing what was seen or what was reported during that time. So phenomenology, looking at the way the world is around you. Now, when you think about God stretching out the heavens like a curtain, imagine you're looking up at the night sky, you're an ancient person, you don't know anything much at all about what is beyond there. It looks like the heavens are draped over the night sky, over the earth, almost like a curtain. The heavens have been stretched out like a curtain over the heavens, okay? Or over the earth. That is a perfectly acceptable application of what is being reported here. Now, the Bible also talks about, um, in one of these passages, about the circle of the earth. Believe it or not, they had knowledge about the circumference of the earth in ancient times. That it's like we, and I'm not sure exactly when all the dates map. I would have to go do some research on that to look and see, well, when was this written versus when we first kind of had that knowledge. But believe it or not, like, the idea that the ancients all believed that the earth is flat is a bunk idea. It's a bunk idea. Um, we had knowledge of the circumference of the earth, um, and we've had it for quite a while. And so um, it doesn't surprise me at all that it talks about the circle of the earth in the same passage that it talks about the stretching out of the heavens. Okay, We should not think about that passage as though the writer is looking at the earth from the moon and thinking about the circle of the earth in the context of the rest of the heavens, and he's talking about this circle out there that um, um, is sitting in this blank void of space, and then the heavens are stretched out around them. Um, it's impossible for the writer of this passage to have that view. That is not a possibility, okay? Unless, again, the, the knowledge is somehow being downloaded from God to the writer, which I don't think is what's happening. We, we don't, there's no evidence that that's the kind of thing that's going on, okay? So this is great evidence for phenomenology. It's great evidence for saying that these people were able to look at the world around them and make this point. And this is, by the way, this is why, and I don't agree with them, but this is why um, people talk about, like, scientifically, people making arguments about the Earth being like a dome, okay? Again, I think 
I think because they had science that refuted this. Um, I think they knew that the Earth was not a dome. Okay, they knew that the Earth was not flat with a dome above it. However, you can just look at the horizon and see. Okay, so you don't even need to have scientific training and background to think about the Earth as a circle. Okay, um, and again, lots we could go into there. But I think it's very important to understand that they were describing what they saw. This is perfect evidence for phenomenology. And um, I think that we want to be able to say that people were describing what they saw back then because that makes sense of a lot of biblical passages that otherwise get pressed into surface for flat earth views or, or excuse me, pressed into service for flat earth views and um, other aberrant sort of teaching. So um, I want to just kind of talk through that issue with you. It was a good case study and a good opportunity to talk through interpreting the Bible with poetic passages and looking at, um, you know, the, the concordism versus non-concordism. And I'd love to have your thoughts on this one, okay? Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's have you in the comments. Be nice, be respectful, please, everybody. Um, you know, we're, especially those of us who are uh, Christians here, like, let's, let's be nice and respectful to each other in the comments. Sometimes the comments are really full of vitriol, and I hate to see that. Let's be nice to each other and, um, and talk through these issues. And if you have genuine questions about this or genuine disagreement, that's fine. Let me know and we'll talk about it. And maybe it'll, you know, maybe your comment will make the next episode. Okay. So I hope this has been helpful for you. Um, if you have any thoughts or questions, again, like I said, please leave them below. You can always email me if you need to, steve at stevesherm.com. Happy to answer those emails as they come in. And uh, until then, we'll see you on the next one. Have a great week.